Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we sang that hymn, Father, this, this evening, that it is well with our soul. We heard the story of, of the man who wrote it and how he wrote it. And it is such an amazing thing, Father, to think of all that that man lost in a short period of time. And then in the midst of his mourning and loss, his mind turns to what matters most, which is that when all has passed away, he would be with you by faith alone in Jesus Christ. What a man of stature it must be, it must have taken to, uh, to recognize that the things of this world are passing away one way or another. And that if we place our hope in the things that we have here, we will be disappointed. So that even if his precious things were taken suddenly, Father, he was in no different position than he ever was. And he recognized that. And he sang a praise that every Christian sings, Father, that it is well with our soul because of what Christ did on the cross. We're so thankful, Father, that we can have that outlook and that by that outlook, Father, we can retain our hope even in the midst of difficult times. So on a weekend when we are called upon by holiday tradition to give thanks, let us be mindful, Father, of just what it is we're thankful for every day and why that matters so much to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I opened with, welcome to your weekend of Thanksgiving. I bet your turkey wasn't the only thing that was stuffed in your house. Um, I, I think this is the only holiday where it's socially acceptable to eat more than you reasonably should. If you are groaning in your waistline from having eaten too much, I can assure you the Lord has heard your cries. And I say that because in His providence, He has responded to your concerns by scheduling the perfect topic for your Thanksgiving weekend preaching. That's right, the topic waiting for you and I today on the pages of chapter 9 is fasting. Isn't that perfect? No, it's not really the main topic, but it is part of this teaching tonight. And tonight we're going to study the second half of a moment that took place between Jesus and his disciples and other disciples in chapter 9. The scene is, I mentioned last week, this scene separates the second and the third grouping of miracles that Matthew is recounting here in chapters 8 and 9. So in this scene, what Matthew is showing us here is Jesus' authority over all those who are in covenant with the Lord. And in particular, his focus here is on Jesus' authority over those who are in the Old Covenant, that is Israel. And in particular, in this case, the unbelieving Pharisees. They were part of the Old Covenant because, as is all Israel, they were born into it. But the Pharisees had hijacked that covenant and its law, And they had tried to make it into something that it wasn't intended to be. They had added many, many new rules to what God originally gave to Moses. And as a result, they had completely remade the religious life of Israel. They called their new rules the oral law, so as to distinguish it from the written law that God actually gave Moses on the mountain. But eventually, in their tradition, they began to tell everyone that their oral law was from God, and it was equivalent to Scripture, and that it was Scripture, They even went so far as to defend their claims by saying that God gave Moses the oral law, but Moses didn't write it down, and then it was passed on over time, and that finally, centuries later, the scribes wrote it down. That's a convenient story to defend their man-made rules. So, in this brief scene that we're now involved in between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus is denying and invalidating the Pharisaic additions to the law. And last week when we started this section, Jesus 
denied the Pharisees' expectations for how the Messiah's ministry was to go when that Messiah came. He reminded the Pharisees that the chief purpose of the Messiah's coming was not to reward all of those Pharisaic leaders for all the many sacrifices they made and all of the law that they were keeping. No, rather the Messiah was coming to bring mercy to those who failed at the law. To those who recognized they could not keep law. And that's why he ate with sinners like prostitutes, tax collectors, and the like. As he said, that's why a doctor comes in the first place. It's for the sick. Now that behavior confused the Pharisees to no end. Because they believed that God's law and their oral law, which to them was all one and the same, that was the way by which you please God. Keeping that set of rules. Scrupulously. That those who kept the law were going to be rewarded. And those who didn't, wouldn't. That was their expectation from the Messiah. And that's what allowed them to stand in judgment over all of those others who couldn't measure up to their high standards of piety. And they disapproved of Jesus showing the likes of those people his mercy and his grace and his interest. He was kind of ruining the whole routine for them. He was breaking all the rules. He was incentivizing bad behavior in their minds. That's a self-righteous attitude. And it's that kind of self-righteousness that will naturally produce in the heart of anyone who lives like that an attitude of judgment toward others. And that's why Jesus told these men, as we saw last week, go and learn what this means, he said, and he quoted from Hosea. And in that scripture, we learn that God says, I desire compassion, not sacrifice. That he would desire that we know him so that we may receive his compassion rather than making ourselves acceptable, as it were, by sacrifice, as if that were possible. That's where we ended. All right, now we're going to move to the second part of this exchange. And now this is still the same scene. And as this scene continues, now we find Jesus with a question that's been put to him by the disciples of John the Baptist, someone we haven't heard about now for a little while. Let's go to chapter 9. We're in verse 14, where we pick up tonight. And I just want to start with that opening verse. Verse 14, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? There's our fasting topic. But the the issue here is not really on the topic of fasting. The issue here is on the keeping of law. John's disciples throw this question at Jesus. Now, if you're just moving through the text here and not paying a lot of attention to the context, it might seem as though their question just came out of nowhere. Uh, Why all of a sudden is that on on their mind? If you feel that way, and in fact, this is a good rule of thumb in general as you study the Bible, if you're in a narrative like we are here and you come to some moment where you feel like that's out of place, all right, well, that's an indication to you that you need to do some homework. That's an indication that you're missing something. And that gives you an indication to go back and do some research. And in this case, we need to understand how this question is related to the moment that we're already in. And to understand that, we have to pay careful attention to this context and, I should add, the context of Luke 5. Because Luke 5 is where we find this same scene, but Luke records some additional details. In both Gospels, Matthew and Mark, we're told that this question comes to Jesus during the mealtime that we've already seen, the one that we studied last week, when he's in Levi's house, or Matthew as we now know him, sitting, eating with tax collectors and sinners, as they said. All right, this is the same moment. While he's eating, they ask him about fasting. In Matthew, the disciples of John, we're told, ask the question. But in Luke's Gospel, we're told that the question comes from the Pharisees. This is what Luke says in 5.33. And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. Yours eat and drink. 
All right? Now I want you to notice in this case, both from what we saw in Matthew and now what we saw in Luke, both of the two gospel writers mention both groups in their question. In the case of Matthew, it's the disciples of John asking the question, but they mention the Pharisees. In the case of Luke, it's the Pharisees asking the question, but they mention the disciples of John. What that tells us is these two groups were asking Jesus the same question, more or less, in unison. They both had the same concerns. Now, whatever reason they had for asking about fasting, it must have been something that was commonly understood, which is why both groups saw the problem at the same time. And it must have been pretty important to have preoccupied both of them in this moment. So that's the question. Why are the Pharisees and and the disciples of John so preoccupied with fasting at this moment? Well, here's where context helps us. If you go look at the larger context in Luke's Gospel, and by larger, I mean go read about a chapter or two ahead, what you find out, and by the way, Luke's Gospel is presented more or less in chronological order, unlike Matthew. In Matthew's account, we've, we've said this in the past, he will move things around in order of time so that he can put things together to make a point to his readers, which is perfectly acceptable in their day and age. It's not something that he did with any kind of ulterior motive. It was just a way of presenting truth. In Luke's case, though, his intent, as he told Theophilus on the outside of his gospel, my intent is to show you what happened in a very sensible, systematic way. So in Luke's gospel, we find out that this dinner at Matthew's house happened only a day or two before a Sabbath, a weekly Sabbath happens. That's what you learn in Luke's account. That means this meal probably took place on a Thursday night. And that explains why the men were so preoccupied with fasting. There you go. Oh, I'm not seeing a lot of recognition in your eyes right now. I'm sorry. Let me explain what I mean. In Jesus' day, the rabbis were teaching that the disciples of a rabbi must fast at least twice a week. And the days they selected for fasting were Mondays and Thursdays. Now, the reason they picked those two days, and by the way, they observed this pattern in the spring between Passover and Pentecost, and they observed it in the fall between Tabernacles and the Feast of Dedication. Those are the two periods of the year in which they thought this should be done. Now, you're asking, why Mondays and why Thursdays? Well, because they said Moses went up to Mount Sinai on a Thursday to receive the law, and he came back down days later on a Monday. All right, well, there's no biblical substantiation of any of that, but it doesn't matter. That's how they justified those two days. But forevermore, Pharisees, scribes, and rabbis generally, and their disciples, were engaged in this twice-a-week fasting activity on Mondays and Thursdays. Now, this is just another example, friends, of how the oral law, as they called it, imposed additional unnecessary burdens on people in Israel. Now, in this case, the average Jew didn't pay attention to this requirement. It was largely limited to Pharisees and their disciples. But the Pharisees and their disciples saw it as a command from God. Uh, They felt like there was no wiggle room on this requirement. So you have men dedicated to finding God through self-righteous rules like this one. And so they, they feel an absolute obligation to keep these things in a sanctimonious way because for them, this is their sacrifice. This is one of those sacrifices that Jesus just said is not the thing that pleases God. Oh, but in their mind, it was. So back to the scene now. You've got Jesus and his disciples, we were told, in Matthew's house eating with a bunch of outcasts. And so naturally the Pharisees and John's disciples are very confused by this. First, you have the judgmental part of this, right? They're, they're not happy that he's showing compassion to these people. But now you're learning they're upset for a whole other reason, too. They're upset that Jesus and his disciples are abandoning the rules of their oral law. They're eating on a Thursday night. They can't do that. It's fasting. 
And you got to have all these guys who've been fasting all day, probably wishing they could eat, and kind of mad at the fact that their disciples get to eat, and Jesus' disciples are eating, and they're not. All right, so it's easy enough to understand why the Pharisees objected to this. But why are John's disciples concerned? That's kind of the strange part of this, isn't it? And for that matter, why are John's disciples here? Why aren't they off following John, for that matter? Or, or we could say it this way, why are they still called John's disciples? Why haven't they started following Jesus like others of John's disciples have done, as we've seen in, in the Gospels? So there's a whole dilemma, a whole mystery here with John and why his disciples are doing this. Well, this is a little more context for you. First of all, remember Jesus said John was sent ahead of him as a forerunner. That is, he was a prophet the Lord brought to Israel before Jesus was finally revealed so that he would prepare the hearts of Israel to receive the Messiah when he came. But once Messiah appeared, John the Baptist said it himself. He says, now that Jesus is here, you ought to follow him. Do not keep following me. I was just here to get you ready for him. Now that he's here, keep going. Go to the thing you want. And in fact, he says in John's gospel, I must decrease so he may increase, right? That was John's ministry. Now, as he did that, many of John's disciples did leave. You can read about some of them in John's gospel. John the Apostle, in his gospel, he describes how as Jesus came and got baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist's disciples began to follow after Jesus. But there were some of John's disciples who refused to leave John. And they stayed John's disciples. They did not go to Jesus. Now, why would that be true? The only possible explanation we have for that is that those men, those few of John's disciples, were not willing to recognize Jesus as Messiah. Now, you probably assume that every follower of John the Baptist would have easily embraced, readily embraced, Jesus when he came. But that's not the reality. The reality is, some of those people, some of those men who came under John's ministry, came there for reasons other than a repentant heart that was seeking mercy in the Messiah. Some of those who came under John the Baptist were stamped in the mold of the Pharisees. They were looking for something they could do in their own power to please God. And you know what? When that's your mindset, the aesthetic, self-sacrificing, self-denial lifestyle of a man living with sackcloth and out in the desert eating locusts and honey, man, that is tailor-made for self-righteousness. That is the, you've just hit the big leagues with that guy. You can follow him around in the desert feeling so much better about yourself because you're suffering every single day. So you can see why men like this would align themselves with the Pharisees in this moment because they're really just two sides of the same coin. These men thought fasting twice a week was the perfect addition to a recipe for self-righteousness. It just made them feel good. But if they liked John's ministry so much... Then we should ask that question I raised a moment ago. Why are they here? Why are they at Jesus' side? Well, again, context. If you go look at the chronology of the Gospels, you find that by the time this moment has come, John the Baptist has been beheaded. They don't have a rabbi anymore. They are disciples looking for a rabbi. And I believe they must have come to Jesus at this point because they remember how well thought of Jesus was by John. And so maybe they're checking him out to see if this guy could be their next rabbi. But then they come upon Jesus, and what do they find? They find Jesus eating with the worst of society, living it up, as it were, and even worse, he's doing it on a Thursday. How can this stand? So as they stand there, John's disciples now stand there, alongside the Pharisees who have a similar mindset. They wonder in unison, 
What is this guy doing? What are his disciples doing? This is like lawlessness in Israel. So we have two different but related groups asking basically the same question. But that also explains what we find next. Because Jesus answers these two groups, each with their own answer. He answers the question twice, one to one group, another to another group. And the first answer is directed to John's disciples. That's in verse 15. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus uses a wedding metaphor in answering his question to the disciples of John, and he does this to explain to them what they're watching happen. And now this metaphor would have been very familiar to them, by the way, because in several places in the Old Testament, including Psalms and at multiple points in the prophet Isaiah's book, you find a wedding metaphor, a wedding picture used this way to describe the arrival of Messiah. And beyond even scripture, it had become Jewish tradition to use the metaphor of a wedding to picture the banquet that we're told in scripture will open the messianic kingdom. When, when the beginning of the kingdom comes and we're back here on earth with Jesus in our resurrected bodies, the Bible says the first major event of the kingdom is a wedding feast with all of us in Jesus. All right, I'm just hoping I don't have to do dishes on that particular night. All right, that metaphor was not something new to these guys. And beyond even that, John the Baptist had used the very same metaphor at one point when he was teaching these same men about the coming of Messiah. This is what he says in John's Gospel, John three twenty-seven. John the Baptist answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. All right, you see there, John uses the same metaphor, describing himself as a friend of the bridegroom who is truly the Messiah. So the fact that Jesus chose to use that same metaphor here now to talk to those same men about what was going on, it tells us he's speaking specifically to John's disciples. This is aimed straight at them. And he's connecting the dots for these guys, or at least he's trying to. He's trying to explain to them, look, your rabbi talked to you about a coming groom. I'm the guy. And I'm sitting here now with my disciples. And then he extends the metaphor to talk about what it would mean then to be at a wedding with a groom. He says that when the bridegroom does arrive, that's no time for mourning. That's a time of celebration. Weddings in this day and age, in this time when Jesus walked the earth, they were a particularly unique and festive occasion. We all love weddings generally. They're good times. We know that. But our life is filled now with so much stimulation I mean, you know, you can have a steak any night you want it, usually, in most places in in the West anyway. You can go out and have a good night downtown or in the you know some bar somewhere in a dance club. I mean, we have TV and Netflix with streaming this or that. You can't turn left or right anymore without entertaining yourself in this culture, right? But you have to move out of that mindset for a second, put yourself back in an agrarian first century lifestyle in which meat was not plentiful. Uh, the effort to make anything took a long time. Parties didn't come along except at scheduled moments in the year. And in between, life was, was pretty plain. It was about subsisting and life in a very general way. Weddings, though, were moments of unequal joy in Jewish life. It was the high point of many Jews' life to go into a wedding. 
And so the Bible uses that moment to picture how God's people should feel and will feel when their Messiah comes for them. Now that's a moment of unequaled, incredible joy and celebration. That's how God has compared the two. Now that day had come for Jesus' disciples when he came the first time, and that day awaits for us in a day soon to come. But on the other hand, when you compare that to the deprivation of fasting, those two things couldn't be more opposite, could they? I mean, fasting by its very nature denies the body joy, and that's one of its spiritual purposes. But it's because of that that it is literally impossible, literally impossible to experience the spiritual benefits of fasting while at the same time engaging in the joy of a wedding celebration. The two are mutually exclusive because you cannot not eat and at the same time enjoy a wedding. Not to its fullest. Not in the way it was intended. So, in fact, if you, historically, Israel had a policy, if you want to call it that, or a practice, of suspending fasting for anyone who was involved in a wedding celebration. You were given a pass, basically. You didn't have to fast. Well, it makes sense, right? So here's what Jesus is saying to John's disciples. He's saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the bridegroom, I've come, and I'm the one your rabbi told you to expect. And therefore, my presence should be cause for great celebration, something on a par with wedding feasts, And that celebration automatically excludes participation in any fasting. That's going to be suspended, he says, for a time, at least until he says, I depart, which we know is a a reference to his coming death and, and his resurrection. So he says to John's disciples, asking my disciples to fast right now would be like asking your wedding guests to skip the meal at a wedding because it happens to fall on a Monday or a Thursday. It's ridiculous. But what was missing here was the disciples of John couldn't see Jesus as Messiah. They couldn't reconcile that the guy that was sitting before them was the one that they had been waiting for all this time. Because remember, they were made in the mold of the Pharisees. They thought they got it. They thought they understood what to look for. But the whole time, this this whole routine that they've engaged in, this weekly fasting, this is something they made up, or if not them, Men like them who came before them. But it's all made up. God's never asked for that. There's nowhere in the scriptures you're going to find God saying you have to fast twice a week. Fasting's a biblical thing to do, but God does not impose it upon his people on a regular basis this way. And so as a result, even if Jesus had not been the Messiah, there was no obligation for his disciples to fast ever. You see, there is no mistake here or sin on Jesus' part. This is what happens when you make up your own rules. When you make up your own rules, everybody's in trouble. That's the nature of rules, right? Laws are about finding lawbreakers. They're not about making people righteous. That was lost on these guys, though, because they saw their traditions as equal to God's instructions. And the great irony here is that they were obeying all of those traditions. They were making all those sacrifices so that they could prepare themselves for the Messiah's arrival. That's what they said to themselves. They were getting ready for the Messiah. They were being pious and rigorous in their law-keeping so that when he came, he would be pleased with them. And yet, now that he's arrived, they're overlooking him. Why? Because he doesn't care about their man-made rules. And for them, that invalidated him. That's the best proof you can have that self-righteousness, by its very nature, estranges you from God and from his compassion, and puts you in a position of acting as if you're God, and you can do all of that in the name of God. And many do. This is the best proof also that these men 
are not following Jesus. That they are still just disciples of John. That is, they're trusting in their self-righteousness and in their personal sacrifice. They're still clinging to that austere life that John the Baptist knew. And they're doing all of it as an end to itself. That's how they're going to be righteous. They're so committed to that lifestyle that even after John is dead, they're still doing it. And they won't follow Jesus. You know how ridiculous this gets? Do you know today there are still groups in the world who consider themselves the disciples of John the Baptist? His movement has never ended. Now, it's not very big or prominent, but it's out there. Isn't that remarkable? So John's disciples preferred the sacrifice that they made with John rather than following Jesus in faith. And that leads us to his second answer. This is now to the Pharisees. There's, again, a similar group, but he gives them a different answer in some ways. 9, 16, and 17, he says this, No one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now, what we saw with the earlier comment to John's disciples was a metaphor, the wedding metaphor. Here, to Pharisees, he gives two parables. The wedding metaphor is pretty easy to understand, but these parables probably left the Pharisees scratching their heads a little bit. Uh, for any who don't know, a parable in, in the Bible is simply, uh, it's a simple story. It uses simple, everyday, well-understood principles, but they stand for deeper spiritual truths. And the challenge in any parable is to make that jump, to make that comparison. So in this case, you have two parables that work together that teach complementary ideas, and we need to dig down a little bit to understand them. Let's begin with the first one. Jesus describes mending torn clothing. That is, he says, if you take a piece of new, unshrunk cloth and you try to use it to patch an old garment, you're just going to make a mess of things. And the reason is because the first time you wash that garment, the old cloth has already shrunk, the new one hasn't, you get the point. They're not going to go in the same way. That new patch will shrink up, And as it does, it pulls at its stitches and it will tear the old garment and it will gather everything up and just it won't be what you want. Luke's version of this adds one other detail. In Luke 5.36, we read this. It says, he was telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. So he adds that this patch has been torn from a new garment to make the patch for the old garment. And so now you have the problem of the won't, they won't match and you've ruined both of them, not just the one. Now, looking at the second parable for just a second before we try to make sense of them, he says you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Now, this parable requires just a little bit of knowledge about the culture of Jesus' day because we don't do this anymore. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, well, I've never patched clothing either, but that's another story. Uh, a wineskin, it was a leather pouch made out of leather, made out of skin. And it was used to hold and ferment wine. And as the fermentation process progressed, it gave off gases. Those gases would press against the inside of the wineskin, pushing on it. And so over time, it would stretch that wineskin to absorb the pressure. And then as the fermentation is completed, you have this wineskin that now has fermented wine in it. It's just bigger than it was when you started, but it's all intact. By the way, I should add in passing, this is one more proof among many I could show you that wine in the Old Testament is fermented. For any who have ever heard somebody try to tell you that the wine of the Bible is not really fermentation, uh, fermented wine is just grape juice for people who somehow have gotten in their mind that that's a sin to drink alcohol, uh, this is a clear refutation of that because this parable would make zero sense if it was just grape juice. 
All right? Anyway, moving on. After a wineskin, though, is used in this way to ferment wine, it can only be used at that point to hold previously fermented wine. At that point, you're not going to ferment anything new in it because obviously if you put new wine back in it, there goes that pressure process again. Only now, all the stretch has been taken out of the skin. It can't go anymore and it's going to burst open if you try to reuse it. And now not only have you ruined the wine skin, but you've lost the wine. It's another waste of time. Now, both of those parables seem like they're teaching basically the same thing, right? And they are closely connected, but they're not exactly the same. The first parable taught that you cannot combine old and new things that aren't compatible, while the second parable teaches that once something has fulfilled its purpose, it can't be pushed back into new service again. So it can't be taken beyond its useful purpose, otherwise you bring it to ruin. All right, so now the question is, what are the spiritual truths that Jesus is talking about here? Well, our answer, as you probably already know, has to come out of the context. What's the context? We have Jesus and the Pharisees disputing over Jesus' obligations to keep the oral law. That's what they're upset about, and that's what Jesus says he doesn't care about. Now, the Pharisees believe he shouldn't eat with these people because they're sinners. They believe he should be fasting because it's a Thursday. And they believe all these things because the oral law of the Pharisees required these things, and so they expected Jesus to abide by them. And they believed all this because they thought it all came from God. In response, Jesus gives these parables. He does so to expose their bad logic. First, he says, you're trying to patch old clothing with something new. That is, he's saying the Pharisees had invented many rules in what we now call the Mishnah, which is, or the Talmud really is a combination of all their historical works. By the time of Jesus, the only one that existed in his time was the Mishnah. Talmud now includes the Mishnah and several later works. But all of these things are the same. They're just rule after rule after rule added by rabbis from different points in history laid on top of what God gave in the law And why did they add all these rules? Well, because in their minds, they were patching holes in the law. They were patching it. Because in their mind, they believed God gave the law to Israel as a means of making Israel righteous. And as such, they had to make sure they kept the law. But the problem was, the law could be vague at times. The law left a lot of details to be interpreted. A lot of situations in life were not spelled out in the law. And so scribes said, we need to make sure that we don't accidentally do the wrong thing. Or that people don't just wander into sin for lack of detail in the law. So they began adding rules, which started as commentary and instruction, and soon became their own scripture to these men. By Jesus' day, those rules had come to be seen as equal to God's law. And in the same way that a patch becomes one with the garment that it patches, the Pharisees didn't see any distinction between them anymore. Except, as Jesus points out, the two don't match. The two don't match. The man-made rules could never equal the authority and validity of God's law. And he says, in effect, adding anything to the word of God only diminishes it. It ruins it in the same way that the patch ruined the old garment. But in this case, it's even worse for these guys. Because over time, and you can begin to understand this now from what you've heard me teach in weeks past... The Pharisees had added so many of these patches to the law, so much of their own law, that at the point we're at now in Israel's history, the only thing the Jewish people could see were the patches. Imagine a garment that's been patched up so much, it's nothing but patches. That's the imagery 
of the law at this time in history. The oral law was all anyone talked about, all anyone taught, all anyone knew. It was what defined religious life in Israel. And as a result, it prevented Israel from recognizing Jesus as their Messiah when he came to them. Because, friends, here's, here's the saddest thing about the whole of this. The law, as we know from what we hear in the New Testament, the law had, as one of its purposes, revealing Christ. A tutor to show Israel their Messiah so that when he came, they'd know him. Only now, the law has been completely obscured by the patches of the Mishnah, To the point that when Jesus did come, not only did they not recognize him for lack of an appreciation of the true law, but they rejected him because he didn't look like the Mishnah. Isn't that ironic? They thought they were following the thing of God and it was the thing that the enemy had designed to lead them away from God. Secondly, Jesus said these men were trying to pour new wine in old wineskins. That is, they were trying to repurpose the old covenant of law by making it into a means to righteousness. Now, friends, the Old Covenant was not a bad thing. The Old Covenant had good purposes. Primarily, it was intended to preserve Israel as a nation until the day that Messiah arrived. It was God's way of of keeping His people separate, isolated from the world, pure and ready to serve Him, so that as He brings Messiah through them, there would be a people there waiting for Him. But once a Messiah had arrived, then the purpose of the law at least regarding righteousness, had been fulfilled. Paul says it this way in Galatians 3. In asking the same question, 3.19, he says, Why the law then? He says, It was added because of transgressions, because of sin, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. But before faith came, he says, We were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. And therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. So when Jesus died on the cross, he brought the purpose of the law for those who have faith in him to conclusion. Its purpose for us has been fulfilled in that we came to the Messiah who the law pointed us to. That was its purpose. So you could say this way. Jesus was literally the wine in the old wineskin of the old covenant who was poured out for us at the cross. But now that Jesus has emptied the wineskin of the old covenant for our sake, visually speaking, he's saying it needs to stay empty. The goal at this point isn't to pour something new back into that old covenant, to find some way to repurpose it. As if it's done a good thing up till now, but what else is it capable of doing for us? Wait a minute, that's not its purpose at all. That's like trying to put new wine back in an old wineskin. We know where that's going to lead. You can't repurpose the sacrifices of the law or come up with new ones that are sort of New Testament versions. One of the best known, most abused versions of that example, that is trying to repurpose an Old Testament sacrifice in New Testament language, is the tithe. Tithing is an Old Testament sacrifice. There is no New Testament version of it. And any who try to bring it across are trying to pour new wine in an old wineskin. There is giving in the church, but it's not tithing, it's not mandatory, and it's not set to a certain amount. That's an Old Testament concept that you call something different in the church now, and it runs a different way now. But when people lose sight of that, they're basically creeping back to the law, even if they don't recognize it. And there's a lot of other ways that gets done. That's just one example that comes to mind. So you can't repurpose the sacrifices of the old, and you can't repurpose the rules 
of the Old Covenant and try to turn the Old Covenant itself into a means of salvation. That's probably the worst way to try to repurpose it. To make it something it was never intended to be, a means of pleasing God for righteousness' sake. Now, I'm talking to Christians, so I'm pretty sure most of you knew this. But Pharisees, they preferred the old system. Any new system that would do away with their rules? I mean, they are invested in this system, friends. How long have they and their predecessors been spending time not just establishing this system, but memorizing it and then living up to it? And now I've got some Yahoo sitting around with prostitutes and tax collectors telling me we're just going to throw all, out the, all that out the window? Even if I believe that he might be onto something, I'm not sure I'm up for that. Meaning my whole life now would be turned upside down. My power structure, my self-actualization, you know, my, my way of thinking good about myself is built on this system that I've mastered and now you say my little system doesn't matter to God. That's a lot to swallow. So from what they could tell, Jesus was proposing a new order and they weren't interested in that new order. In Luke's account, we hear Jesus saying this one additional comment to these men at this point. In verse 39 of Luke 5, he says, And no one after drinking old wine wishes for the new, for he says the old is good enough. Jesus says that once a man has a taste for old wine, he's not going to be interested much in the new wine. And of course, in the sense of the parable, we understand that very well, right? Old wine, generally aged wine, tastes better than new wine. Once you've tried the old, you're not going to be as happy with the new. But what Jesus is saying to them spiritually is, once a person has become accustomed to seeking self-righteousness under rule-keeping systems, it's really hard to fulfill your desire with anything else. I told you last week that self-righteousness is a seductive suitor. There's something about trying to make yourself righteous that makes us feel good about ourselves, doesn't it? I mean, even those of us who know that we're saved by faith alone, not by works. I get it. We all know that up here. But come on, isn't there that part of you that you do feel good a little bit when you make a sacrifice for God? Right? There's something about making sacrifices that satisfies us. It's like that Puritan work ethic thing that still lives in our culture at some level, right? When we work a little harder and do a little more and give a little more, we feel a little better about ourselves. You know what that little something is in you that feels so good? Five-letter word, pride. That's what that is. That's just pride. That's not God telling you he's happy. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't tell you to sacrifice. I'm not saying he won't tell you to do lots of things. I'm just telling you that if you think that's made you more pleasing to God, that's not God. That's pride. Because in Christ alone, you are pleasing to God. And by your faith in Christ, you are already 100% pleasing to God. You can't do better than 100%. You started at 100% as you came to faith. Try to do better than that. So what's your motivation to do anything? It can't be to make yourself pleasing to God because that is antithetical to the gospel of grace. But what can it be? It can be a devotion of obedience to God who's asked it of you. That's a whole different spirit. That's a whole different feeling. The Pharisees, they loved that prideful feeling. That was their juice. They loved that accomplishment they got every time they completed a fast. Every time they jumped through one of those countless hoops that made up their oral law, their pride just could check another box in their heart. They found another reason to feel good about themselves. They, they assumed God must feel the same way. I think this explains why you can have pious people who invest years of living out Christian sacrifices in various ways and yet never come to know Jesus as Lord in their heart. 
It's because along the way, they became content with the old wine of self-righteousness, and they learned to love that self-sacrificial style of following God. You know, and, and it comes down to different things today, but it's things like just going to church. If there's some, by the way, if there's somebody in here right now that feels like coming here tonight was a sacrifice and you feel a little good about having put in the effort, you should leave. I mean, it's not helping me. It's not helping your friends in the room. And I assure you, it's not helping God. I mean, that's not a reason to come sit and listen to me. So going to church, giving money, of course, that's a big one. We always feel sacrificial when we give money. Serving in various ways, doing penance, whatever it is that somebody taught you you have to do to make God happy. Those things just tickle us a little bit in our pride, and we go away feeling like God must be happier. And there are people who learn to live on that alone. And so if and when somebody does present them with the grace of the new covenant, and they're told that faith alone in Christ's sacrifice is the only way to receive forgiveness from God, They hear it, perhaps, but they still prefer the old way. So to that person, Jesus says, that's not how you become righteous, nor is that how you please God, and it's certainly not how you receive His forgiveness. He says at the end of verse 17 in Matthew, He says, we have to put new wine into fresh wineskins if you want to preserve both. And then I think what He means in this context, new wine is the new covenant, That is, it is the covenant God establishes in His Son that brings us salvation by faith alone. And that new wine has to be put in a new wineskin. That is, a new heart of faith. A heart that's not trusting in its own righteousness, doesn't trust in its sacrifices, isn't trying to work its way to heaven, is a heart that's ready to receive grace. Now even the best among us, even those of us who have done the, the hard work of sacrifices, grown up in a puritanical home, lived in some kind of legalistic church culture, did all the things they were told to do, you know what, you're still a long way from God because it only takes one sin. That's it. Knowing that, a new heart gets ready to accept God's righteousness credited to you by faith in Jesus because you know that was the only way. Those who have that new heart, filled by the love of Christ, who are in the new covenant, Jesus says in verse 17, they're being preserved, that is, in the parable. You preserve both the heart and the wine in that way. They have eternal life. That's why I love that hymn we sang tonight, that here's a man who's lost so much in his life, and yet when he sat on the boat looking over the spot where his wife and his daughter's boat went down, what was the first thought he had? Christ's second coming, my eternal future, the soul's redemption, that is, things that are not dependent on this life, that don't come and go, that are permanent, eternal, forgiveness, salvation. That's where our hope lies. But as we walk with Christ in those things, engaging in activities like witnessing, like praying, like fasting, what we should be doing at all times as Christians is checking our heart on why we do these things. Ask yourself this, why am I doing these things? What am I hoping to gain by me doing these Christian things? Be careful that your heart doesn't slip back to a point where you are justifying yourself before God. Even if you know you're saved by grace, it is still possible to feel as though you're helping yourself just a little bit. That is, you're patching up your salvation just a little bit. Adding your own good works on top of Christ. Sort of like an insurance package. Just in case. Or you're trying to put the old wine of legalism into the new covenant wineskin. You know, so that you can sleep a little better at night. That's not going to make it. You need to be on watch for that kind of pride because it leads to self-righteousness. Does behavior matter? Well, of course it does. But here's the thing. 
If you are adopting new behaviors because you think they bring you to God, they will be an act of sin in and of themselves. You're trading one sin for another. When you make an action, though, a change in your life that is out of conviction because you've been saved and because you want to please the God who has saved you, well, that's a whole different story. It's about the heart, not about the behavior. Self-righteous Christians aren't more saved than the rest of us. But don't tell them that, okay? They're, leave them where they are. But I'll tell you what can be different. Self-righteous Christians are a lot less compassionate toward those who need forgiveness. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, on a weekend we give thanks, Father. We thank you most of all for the precious gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who by his death on a cross took a penalty we could not pay and by his perfect life lives, gives us the righteousness that brings us to you by faith. We thank you, Father, for that eternal gift. And with our hearts, Father, we cry out to you tonight that if, if you receive us in faith, help us walk by that same faith, Father. Help us to know that our works please you not because they make us more pleasing, Father, but because they are according to your will. That obedience is an end to itself, Father. That it's simply that we would be doing as you've asked that makes you pleased with us. And not that we have somehow improved ourselves and warranted your pleasure. These are such subtle differences, Father, that it is easy for us to overlook them in our daily walk. But I'd ask, Father, that you'd remind us and more than that, convict us. As we see ourselves living out this life you've given us, Father, call us to look upon the things we do with renewed understanding of what it is we do them for. If we're doing them, Father, just to make ourselves more pleasing to you, to, to be approved by our own efforts, Father, well then, take this thing away, Father. Take away those sacrifices. Reset us to something better. And show us what you'd rather have us do. Help us to be the, the one who follows you, Father, without regard for those externals, but only by our heart, knowing that we have been saved already, that we want to please you, Father, and, and be obedient. Father, let it be the, what guides our feet and our hands our minds. Thank you, Father, for that reminder tonight. And in weeks to come, help us to show the compassion that comes from knowing we've been forgiven by grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.